one of the extraordinary things about music full stop is that it is both a science and an art. And it is a it is an intellectual pursuit that is also a spiritual practice. So it is it is all of those things. It's all of those quadrants. And and that of course is the fascinating thing about it, because the science of a piece of music can all be right, you know, quote right, and that doesn't go any distance toward explaining why it makes you cry, you know, to what, what its spiritual qualities are. And that, to me, that, that is what keeps me, that's what keeps the engine of desire running in me, because why are some of these works so compelling, you know, and why do some composers now, even my, my contemporary composers, how can they pick out of the ether a set of notes that are so impactful and other people can't. Well, good morning. Hello. Or good whatever it is, wherever you are. It's morning here. We've had a tropical storm and the electricity just went back on. So I will uh, be excited about being able to release this episode on this Wednesday. Welcome to The Sacred Speaks. My name is John Price. And today I'm excited to bring you Patrick Summers. I'll explain who he is if you don't know him in a bit. Uh, but for a second, I want to talk about a couple of ideas that have been bouncing around and this conversation certainly picks up on this idea of um, reductionism scientific reductionism or even you know, in the science of music reductionism my my colleague and co-writer Rodney Waters and I lectured in February on the subject and he he did this really cool um, in his presentation, he presented a, a, the, the sheet music from Beethoven and you know, said, here's, here's Beethoven's song and here are the notes and here's how you'd play it. And then got on the piano and actually played it and said, here's the experience. And so th this gets at the core of a, an issue between the sciences and the humanities. And if you're curious about jumping into that, listen to, I think it's episode 38 with Jeff Kripal, who's written a book called The Flip on this subject, that, that when you get into certainly the sciences and the humanities, one of the core areas of debate is kind of the, the, the reductive components of that we look at, that we want to measure in science. We want to break things down to their smallest um, quantifiable uh, constituents. 
And in, in, in the humanities, it's, it's a little different. It's looking at things like experience and what moves us. And as Jim Hollis said in another episode, you know, the liberal arts liberate us. And so the, the essence of the battle is, is played out in, with this in mind, that the one wants to reduce something to quantify it and identify it and understand it, and that's a valuable endeavor. The other wants to experience and pay attention to how we experience and, the, you know, and, and what is our experience of our experience. And, and this is a fascinating dynamic because, you know, in a sense, neither is wrong, but each battles each other for primacy and superiority. And I'm just blown away by looking at um, subjects such as music to so easily understand the differences between there are notes and rhythm and you know beats and timber in music and all of those can be defined and identified but when put together in a particular way it creates something that is unique and can move us and that kind of blows my mind so thanks for this first piece now i'm going to get to a couple of things the first is i want to introduce you to patrick and uh, and then again, if you haven't met him before or you don't know him, uh, I'm going to read his bio and then get to a couple of things, and then we'll just get started. Summers graduated from the Jacobs School of Music of Indiana University with a bachelor's degree in music in 1986. Upon graduation, he participated in the San Francisco Opera's Merola program, uh, ARPA program, as an apprentice coach in '86 and '87, and won the Otto Guth Memorial Award for Excellence in Vocal Coaching both years. Summer's first professional engagement with San Francisco, San Francisco Opera's Western Opera Theater was conducting La Boheme in their 86-87 season. In 89, Summers began his tenure as the music director of the San Francisco Opera Center, a training opera for young singers. His first main stage production, Die Fledermaus, was in 1990, pardon my German. In 1998, Summers was made the music director of Houston Grand Opera, a position he held, has held since. 98 also saw Summers Metropolitan Opera conducting debut and Johann Strauss's Die Flodermas. Summers has repeatedly returned to the Metropolitan Opera as a guest conductor. As music director of Houston Grand Opera, Summers oversaw the foundation and, and development of the HGO Orchestra. Prior to the orchestra's foundation, HGO hired outside orchestras for its production. Since 98, Summers has conducted over 50 productions at Houston Grand, at Houston Grand Opera, including seven world premieres, notably Carlisle Floyd's Cold Sassy Tree in 2000. In recent years, Summers helped oversee the creation of HGO's HGO Co., an initiative that includes commissions, teacher workshops, and opportunities for children and young students. In 2011, following Anthony Freud's move to Chicago Lyric Opera, Summers was named Houston Grand Opera's Artistic and Music Director. In 2002, he won a Grammy Award for his audio recording Bel Canto and the soprano Renee Fleming and the Orchestra of St. Luke's. He's recorded many new works with Houston Grand Opera. Read the bio if you want to see this list. And uh, most, I think, specific to our conversation, in two, uh, 2018, Summers released a book. It's called The Spirit of This Place, How Music Illuminates the Human Spirit. It's released on Chicago University of Chicago Press. Okay, and then a couple of things. And I'm excited. Uh, Patrick and I have kind of um, been involved in a couple of cool projects together so it was fun to get to know him in this way 
and uh, and of course to read his book. It's a collection of essays. I recommend it. And he's um, he gets into this subject from a different perspective than kind of the typical academic humanities and science debate. So again, I'm really appreciative of how this conversation flows. Uh, a couple challenges to you, the listener. Patrick mentioned, we were talking about music and how music can really transform your experience. And I had said how this podcast has really broadened and deepened my understanding and connection with music. And he said, look, you know, people don't really listen to classical music or opera. He said, just watch, pay attention, get you know one of nine of uh, Beethoven symphonies and listen to it. In fact, over the next nine weeks, listen to one per week. And I accepted the challenge. I'm on symphony number one. And every day when I drive to work or bounce around, I'm, I'm trying to uh, allow that music to, uh, to be, to be um, I don't know what word I want to use, but just to be taken in. So I think, I think these kinds of practices, music, uh, meditation, whatever we have, um, can help shape our experience. And I think the main point is to try something like this and just see what happens. Run an experiment. Be a, a scientist of uh, your own life. And, and just watch. And I know I will, and I'll address this in upcoming podcasts. I'll, I'll talk about this and just see how things are moving. Um, oh, the other thing is uh, check out Houston Grand Opera at houstongrandopera.org. And we talk about one of the upcoming shows, Saul. It's Friday, October 25th through um, November 8th. Uh, but just poke around on the website. See if, if you're in Houston, if there are any shows you can see wherever you are. Go see an opera. Uh, but I'll certainly be seeing Saul one of those dates, and I'm excited to do that. Uh, okay, so on, oh, on other notes, um, the music you're hearing on the podcast, the theme music is from Modern Nations. You can get them at modernnationsmusic.com. The music that you're listening to, the first clip, music by Andre Previn. It's called Brief Encounter, and the Houston Grand Opera Orchestra and Patrick Summers were involved in this. It's a piece that was released in 2011, and the song that I, I sampled was the uh, track number one. At the end of this episode, you're going to hear a track from the Renee Fleming Bel Canto record that Patrick was involved in and won the Grammy for. And I highly recommend hanging around the uh, till the end of the song. <laughs> Listen to this song. This is opera at, uh, at its best. I thoroughly enjoyed listening to this album this week as I'm trying to select the right song, and I, I think this is the one that I felt most comfortable with. So check those out in the, um, as, I, as I say, liner notes of the podcast. You can check out links and be directed to all of these these places, these websites. Uh, check this podcast out on thesacredspeaks.com. Also look at Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, under The Sacred Speaks. Like it, share it. Uh, it's much appreciated. And to that point, the the sponsor <laughs> of this podcast and uh, it is the Center for the Healing Arts and Sciences. And this place is near and dear to my heart. It's our business. My wife and I started this business a while ago, and it's been a, a, a silent sponsor for the past almost two years, but now we're just going to call it what it is. Check out the Center for HAS. It's the Center for the Healing Arts and Sciences, the Center for HAS.com. 
And there you can learn about what we're doing in Houston with uh, traditional Chinese medicine, holistic integrative care, psychotherapy, so on and so forth. And uh, we, we welcome any of your questions. Okay, I think that's it. <laughs> I think that's it. So thanks for listening. And uh, as always, if you like the podcast, like it and share it. And for now, leave it there. Well, let's let's jump into it. I want to hear about my first question here, if it's a question, is more of an invitation, is would you introduce both myself and the listener to your work? And, you know, one of our agreement when we talked about doing this, and thank you for agreeing to do this, is that I'd read your book and we'd talk about it. Okay. And we'll, uh, we'll go as far off book or stay on book, wherever you like to go. There's no real agenda. I, um, I grew up in a small town in southern Indiana, in Lagoti, Indiana, L-O-O-G-O-O-T-E-E. Uh, my parents were World War II generation people. I was a very late arrival in their lives. My mother was in her late 40s when I was born. I was what they used to say it was an accident. <laughs> and uh, they didn't say that. Others said that. Um, I, had, I had truly extraordinary parents in that they were, they were not either of them musicians or uh, educated themselves. They were, they were working class people who uh, wanted nothing else but to have a family and have a and create a world for their children that they didn't have and that is an extraordinary goal in life you know for for two people they were married two weeks before pearl harbor was bombed and then suddenly you know their lives became really challenging so when i came along and 1963 and was uh, very attracted to music and literature and looking at sunsets and I would bring in autumn leaves from the yard uh, I remember bringing in <laughs> an autumn leaf that I thought was so beautiful and I was in tears about how beautiful it was and I wanted to frame it, keep it. And, you know, so suddenly my parents had to deal with this aesthetic, sensitive, emotional creature that they did not have themselves a vocabulary for. Mm but they had such infinite compassion and empathy and patience to, to figure out what was best. And I, I remember I, I loved playing the piano still. I, my, my, I thought there would be nothing greater in life than 
spending every day at the piano, learning the great piano repertoire and spending your life doing that. I thought that was, I, I felt that at a very early age. And I was a more than decent pianist. I was studying with, a, with our grade school music teacher in Ligoti, uh, grade school, high school music teacher, Janice Arnett was her name. And I got to age 13 and she said, she went to my parents saying, I think I've taught him everything I can. He needs to, he needs to go to Indiana University to study, which is a, was, is a wonderful music school. My parents were quite wary of that uh, because I was 13 years old. Uh, it, was, it was an expense for them. It was something outside of their experience. It was something that was going to separate me from them. I went, I will never forget it, I went to, a, my dad drove me to Bloomington about an hour away and <clears throat> uh, we played for two faculty members, I played for two faculty members at Indiana and they started talking to my dad about Bach and Beethoven and Mozart and Schubert and Brahms and all these things that I needed and technical exercises and how much I needed to practice and what classes I could enroll in. And my dad, a uh, very soft-spoken, gentle person, he said he stopped them in mid-sentence and said, um, you are great learned men who understand everything that you're talking about and I don't want to feel embarrassed, and I won't know what you're talking about. So whatever you say he needs, we'll do. And that was the essence of my parents. And so what, a, what an extraordinary gift to have, you know. They, they made that happen, and it was a hardship for them in, in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. uh, for me to start school that young, but they did it. And um, when I was at Indiana University, I was exposed to opera and, and to conducting, and that's when my own just inner world came to life. And before you continue down that trail, I just have these images of what it was like to be a 13-year-old boy mm -hmm. walking onto a college camp. It's mm -hmm. intimidating enough for yeah. an 18-year-old person. Plus, it's intimidating for a 45-year-old person. <laughs> what were your thoughts as you were... It was scary. Um, it was scary, but I also felt that I was in my world for the first time. You know, that, that there was so much I wanted to learn and and I still it's very cliched. We all talk about learning, but I still am so I'm so energized by learning things, you know. And the and the the one of the qualities of knowing a lot about anything is that you know what you don't know. You know, you're exposed suddenly to a whole. I'm constantly 
learning more about music and theater and literature and my dear recently departed friend Andre Previn said you know there there are a million things I don't know about music I'm just trying to narrow that number down you know <laughs> and and I very much feel that way you know there's so much that I love learning so so yeah it was intimidating but it was uh it was very stimulating it was very stimulating too and it's still you know you have to step into things constantly as a professional musician you have to step into things that are terrifying it's all scary so you have to you have to decide where you're going to you know where you're going to focus that and um so and and actually knowing or discovering that I wasn't going to be a solo pianist was very liberating because in opera and as a conductor I was making music with other people you know and so I still use the piano as solace and as my my own physical relationship to music is still as a pianist but my life has been and my creative life has been as a conductor and a teacher and a writer. And when did that shift? Early. Late teens. Yeah, because we're talking about early is really early for you. Yeah. 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 I've been a professional for 40 years and I'm 56. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I walked as a, I started playing music when I was very differently than, than you did. I started playing music when I was six i mean i got a guitar you know yeah. i started messing around i took yeah. lessons when i was in third grade yeah and i i think that the essence of music in our trajectories if you compare those two things we're talking about entirely different experiences and you're so okay with with my own knowledge of music which was really by ear i took lessons and i, I really I couldn't stand doing scales, mm -hmm. and so they, I wanted to just play rock and roll. Mm -hmm. My first song was Johnny Be Good, you know, mm -hmm. and that was, mm -hmm. I was hooked. Yeah. And I, in college, I, I signed up for a music theory course that I, I made it about 15 minutes into the class mm -hmm. and realized I was way out of my league. It's hard. It's hard. It's extremely hard. Yeah. And that's the science of music, of course. Right. And one of the, extraordinary things about music full stop is that it is both a science and an art mm. and it is a it is an intellectual pursuit that is also a spiritual practice so it is it is all of those things it's all of those quadrants and and that of course is the fascinating thing about it because the science of a piece of music can all be right you know, quote, right. And that doesn't go any distance toward explaining why it makes you cry. Mm -hmm. You know, to what, what its spiritual qualities are. And that, to me, that that is what keeps me, that's what keeps the engine of desire running in me. Because why are some of these works so compelling? You know, and why do some composers now, even my my contemporary composers, how can they pick out of the ether a set of notes that are so impactful 
and other people can't. You know, and that's a, I that's a great question. And I think I think that is you know, I, I I think in a in a sort of meta way that that music is a is is some kind of attempt to to define that thing that is you know, there's you and there's me and there's this space between us that we're talking in. But we're we're with music. We're both we're both looking at something like infinity, whatever the music is. It's it's this energy that is there that defines something that's not you and not me. And I think I think symbolically, that's what all of the elements of music are. You know, melody, rhythm, timbre. I think they all have a a really important cosmic relationship to something we're seeking. And I think it just keeps us seeking. And I, I find that just fascinating and thrilling and, and incredibly beautiful because we, it's infinite. You can't get there. And, and that's okay. But, but knowing that there is that infinite thing there uh, is enough. Well, in that, you're, earlier you're, you started talking about science and art, and, and I don't think it's a leap for somebody who's thinking about this to understand the religious or spiritual quality of music, but I wonder if we can tend to that a little bit. I mean, we've got a, a couple of headings here, you know, um, you know, when I was in the studio recording years ago, mm-hmm. I had a, I had one of the guys, one of my producers, that was like, "Hey, you know, let's do that thing. You know, play play the play the D, but we'd do the pinky thing and do that thing with your, you know, yeah. and play." The, that's how we communicated. It yeah. wasn't about yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but we do that too. <laughs> we do that too. Yeah. And and I guess to out myself a little bit, there are times where I feel, and I'm sure, I mean, I know you'll you'll know this, but there are times when I'm a little scared about. This sounds foolish. I'm I'm probably intimidated or scared, anxious about the kind of essence of when I write or play music. I don't know where it comes from. I don't know what to call it. I don't know why I did what I did. That's right. And when when theory comes along, I find because I'm doing a lot with music theory right now, and I think I'm a little nervous. Like don't don't take away that kind of intuitive. Of you know, like what's going to happen when I get too thinky about. You can't do that. You can do that. So about I, the rules. Yeah. yeah. All the, so I want to yeah. I want to talk about music theory and and w- with science and art and then kind of maybe get into religion and spirituality if that's. An okay I kind setup. of view music theory the way, the way I the way any other theory is, which which is a, is that it is a, it is, it is theoretical proof of what is proven, you know, so that. Uh, you know the overtone series uh, of of tones w- is is a scientific truth. So if you play middle C, there will be a sympathetic vibration, an octave above that, and then a fifth above that, and a third above that, and that will be true underwater, or on top of Mount Everest, or anywhere. 
it's a, it's a scientific truth about music. So, so that, you know, that's true if you strike a, you know, at hollow stone or if you strike a cello. Yeah. So I find that to be uh, just a, a thing of enormous beauty. I don't find that to be a, a, a rule that is hindering creativity. And, and of course, the, the greatest musicians take what is theoretical about music, which theory in its scientific sense, meaning proven truths that are true until something else is proven. And can be replicated. And, and can so be and so replicated. Sure, sure. Uh, yeah. Theory in its scientific sense. Yeah. So not theory in terms of something that might be true, but something that is true until we know more. Yeah. Um, and the, and so the, the theoretical truths about music, which are scientific, uh, scientific things about sound, they're, they're wonderfully interesting, but they don't explain music. They don't explain what composers or creators do that transcend theory. So to label this a little bit, this is getting into, I think, a, a, a bit of reductionism yeah. versus yeah. You know, the intuitive whole, yeah. right? As, okay. Yeah. And, and, and so what, what composers are able to do in my world uh, are they're able to go into this vibrating place of creation and and all theory goes out the window and and they listen to some voice or they they use their craft to to fashion something that allows you the listener to to hear something i think i find that just you know that to me is is that's the spiritual quest uh, in miniature, you know, because it doesn't make any difference whether whether Johann Sebastian Bach. It makes no difference what he himself felt when he was writing the Saint Matthew Passion. It it I hope that he was able to write that with joy and and realize when he got to the last measure that he'd written one of the two or three greatest works of art in the history of western man i hope he was able to feel that but more likely he was like but you know i got to get this done by tuesday yeah. <laughs> and and i don't know what he felt but i know what he created and so, you know, we, we're so transactional now that we somehow feel the, the creator is translated into the creation. But, but many times I think, you know, the creator is a craftsperson and your experience is, is something else. So, I mean, I, I mean, I have no idea what Bach, and I'm not a Bach scholar, I don't know I mean, I know a little bit about Bach, but I don't know. There are many people who know a 
great deal more about Bach the man and Bach the musician. But when I'm in the presence of that work or, or you know, some of the organ, organ preludes and fugues of Bach, and I'm not an organist, I'm a keyboardist, but I'm not an organist. I, was, I never played those. But when I'm in the presence of those, I am just, I mean, not just as a musician am I humbled, but just as a human being, I, I can hardly speak. They're so, they're so extraordinarily beautiful. I mean, it's some of the, it's some of the greatest music ever written. So I don't know how to explain that. I can't, I don't know how to explain that in a theoretical sense to someone. I can say, this is where the fugue themes happen and, you know, this is their numerical relationship and all of that. But that's not, you know, that's not what it is. And I mean, Bach's just one of those people. There are, thankfully, <laughs> hundreds of those people. Bach. There aren't hundreds of Bach's, but, uh, you know, I, I find I find that so infinite it's the when i when i hear that music or when i study that music you know there's there's the performance of it that's one thing you know is the performance in tune and is it well conducted and is it well sung and there's there's that there's all of that you know surface stuff that we obsess with you know and our our favorite conductor or our favorite singer or this and that but then there's there's that whole deeper level that this creation exists at all, mm-hmm. you know, like Shakespeare. I mean, like the, the Shakespeare plays, you know, you, <laughs> you, you know, there's, there's infinite ways to perform those plays, but they exist. He had to have had a, an ability to tap into something infinite to write them at all. And so that, that, that's where I kind of, find myself every day in in a state of wonder sometimes to to great emotional detriment because i i get <clears throat> i get very imprisoned by time i find i i you know i'll i'll start practicing in the morning or studying and I'll get distracted by something that has to be done or an email or a call or, you know, and you, your, your own creative juices start flowing and then something interrupts them or you have to get to an appointment and all the stuff that we have to deal with in life and have always had to deal with in life. That's not, that's not a modern problem. You know, Mm -hmm. you always have to eat and pick up your kids and, you know, you know, you know, you, you have to, there is life. And, but I find, and I've always found this, it's not just with aging. I find myself imprisoned by time. I won't have enough time to do this. Uh, I wish I had more time for this. I won't get to this. Or I, I, and it's, I have a very complicated relationship to time, which is slightly paradoxical to me because I'm in a temporal industry. You know, it takes it takes however long when you start a piece of music. It takes however long to play it. Mm-hmm. You know, or some of the Wagner operas that I've conducted that you you start at six o'clock and you know the final curtain is not until after eleven, and and that carries you along. But when I'm in that 
temporal world, when I'm in a composer's temporal world, I'm not imprisoned by time at all, which is weird to me. But when I'm not, when I get up in the morning and I know that, you know, between 6 a.m. and 10 a.m., I want to accomplish, I, you know, I've got four or 500 words to write for something, you know, for something I'm writing and I need to study for an hour and I want to do my piano exercises. And suddenly it's, you know, nine o'clock and I have to get ready to leave. And I, I'm like, I, I feel, I feel really, uh, I feel time bearing down on me. And I don't know, I don't know quite what that's about. I was having this thought is, to me, it seems like there's a loss of self. And of course that depends on how you define self, but we could say it's the ego. There's some kind of self-awareness that goes away in those moments that, it, yeah, that are maybe. outside of time. Maybe. And that to me puts that in line with that kind of spiritual aspect of this altered state of consciousness that you, one can get into when truly present with whatever's coming out. That, I don't know, that to me is something I, because I feel that, I, you were talking about Bach earlier, and I, sometimes a, a timestamp on something can motivate me to get something done, but while doing it, there's a, I'm not thinking about a rush of time. There's a, it's a paradox, I guess. It's it is, of, and it, it's frustrating. Because yeah. my, cause my, my, aware, my own awareness has shifted in the last, I don't know, four to five years, two to three years, maybe. My own awareness has shifted. I used to be, I used to be like super, super aware of the whole bubble around me, you know, in the moment. And, and now my awareness is very different and I'm, I seem, I seem less aware of what's immediately around me and I'm, I'm, it's a, it's a, it's some kind of creative force that's kind of moving around that I tap into. It's hard to explain. Well, I, well, yeah. it, it may be hard to explain, and maybe this question is going to put you on the spot, but I, I'm, as we're talking about kind of science and theory before moving into transcendence and spirituality, I'm interested in your process and whether it's as a composer or a conductor, I think, you know, again, as a musician, at the risk of, of reducing, but I think that's part of what the theory does, is it, could you explain a little bit for, for people that are kind of, let me, and let me pause there for a second and just say, when it comes to opera, one thing that you wrote about that I liked very much was how, in earlier times, the burden was on the audience member to, you know, because here you have this performance that may be in a different language. Mm. And, you know, you, and so th there's something you had written about how these are folks who would read about the story. They would know what's going on. They, so in other words, they would have some kind of relatability. And yeah. current day, I don't know that, and I can't make this generalization, but it just doesn't seem to me as people that people are as willing to invest the kind of intellectual and emotional energy to kind of 
learn what's going on in the foundational components of of the storyline. Yeah. And like opera becomes this kind of social thing and sure I'm I'm, a, I'm I'm supposed to like opera because it's x y or z versus let me actually find out what's what's coming from underneath. So could you maybe tend to that for a little bit about yeah. what's going on in the underneath space? You know, opera <clears throat> opera's always been this art form that's that's been right at the center of intellectual life and, and right at the center of creativity but always at the margins of culture because it's been because it asks a lot of people you know that you know that it's so utterly unrealistic um you know people don't go around singing unless they're you know in the sound of music yeah right <laughs> you know and um and you, you know you 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 have to accept the full abstraction of it as as a pathway to the beauty of it and if you can't accept that abstraction then you're not going to like it so th so the just on the surface the fact that people are singing instead of talking so that's not what we do in life um you know okay uh, you you have you have to accept that but opera is a is a is an art form that it's like a like a microscope does you put something under a microscope and you amplify it and sometimes the observance of what you are amplifying alters it um, and it, it changes what you're looking at sounds like quantum physics and 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 so opera will take a human emotion and amplify it with music and then amplify it with the singing voice and the 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 human singing voice you know these two little vocal folds inside the larynx that that are utterly unique to every human being they're like a fingerprint it's just a sonic you know vocal print everyone every single voice is different unique to every person uh your 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 modal speaking voice is 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 the sonic imprint of who you are there is no other um but when you amplify that and you 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 sing those two vocal folds vibrate all of the air around you that is the, that's that's the life force of singing so it takes, it takes that sonic imprint that is unique to you, and it it fills the room that you are in. So it it vibrates the air. So to me, that that is the most beautiful and potent spiritual image. That that something that is inside a person. You know, no, you cannot see your larynx without the help of a doctor. You, you that something is that is inside of you can vibrate the air around you and enter other people. I mean, I, I find that just impossibly moving. You know, because it's, it it is, 
and, and in opera where we're not amplified, where the sound is natural, uh, you are in the same room with these voices. So, so you're in the same vibrating air as they are, and it's happening in the moment. So as an art form, what the composer has done is give voice to some deep emotion in him or her, and in turn, the interpreters, the singers, give that composition voice. And I, I, I hope that the other part of that triangle, that holy triangle, is the audience being given voice by hearing it. So that's the art form in miniature to me. It's about, the, it's about giving voice and everything that that means. Giving voice to, to um, spiritual conundrums, giving voice to comedy, giving voice to, to great philosophical questions. Um, that's the attraction of opera, is that it gives voice. But you do have to accept that it's on the surface, I mean, it's the most absurd thing, <laughs> you know, ever thought of. Well, so much is quite trivial. That, uh, well, you know, I mean, I mean, you know, I mean, it's <laughs> the 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 number of things that can go wrong in an opera performance because there are so many moving parts make it utterly absurd, and it's absurdly expensive, and it's, you know, I mean, all of the things about it on the surface are ridiculous, yet when it is, <laughs> when it is at its best, it's it's one of the greatest human creative forces we have. Yeah. I thought about the voice. I think about that Giving a lot. voice. Giving voice and vocatus and vocation and how many uh, common terms we accept that are related to I feel called, giving voice, my vocation. Yeah. You know, it, that metaphor is immense, you know, in how I'm using my voice Finding my voice. Finding my voice. All that stuff, you know, just and, and that's the, that's the frame that we're in in, in those. I, I think in those, whether we're conscious or not, you know, there's something happening about. I mean, opera. I, I think the, the the voice is it is. It's so different than any other method, uh, and it takes such precision and yes. work. In and, order. and yes, and and it makes and it's. It makes a person, it makes a singer so vulnerable because this, this is some part of them that is, again, inside of them, but it's utterly unique to them. And I have to, for any, anybody, I'm assuming nobody that's listening to this is thinking this, but if anybody thinks it's absurd, the idea of feeling vulnerable when singing, go sing a little bit. Oh, my you know? gosh. <laughs> like, <laughs> don't uh, oh don't write it off, right? Try to use your voice in a way that communicates an emotional experience in your bedroom. Sure. I, give it a shot and 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 see what comes up for you. And that's true of all kinds of singing, not just classical singing. Right. That is that is just true of singing, and and um, and I think you know one of the things in the United States, especially not only but especially in the United States, so many gifted singers come through churches because that's where they that's where they learn to sing as children and that's where 
singing is an expression that is more natural, um, you know, as part of a as part of a spiritual service. Part of a part of part of spirituality is singing and giving voice, you know, to those to the, to devotional ideas. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, a lot of people learn to sing in that way. But I also find that. Uh, a lot of singers, and I'm very attracted to these particular singers, they have, they, they were in some way marginalized for, for other reasons uh, in the way that we marginalize. And, in, and, and as, as the culture is increasingly transactional, that's going to happen more and more. Um, sometimes when talented singers as kids can sing, they can feel beautiful in a way that maybe in other way in other parts of their life they can't. And so that that's a different way that singing gives voice to people. And so um, the this obsession we have an obsession now in opera with how people look you know and i mean we don't just have an obsession in opera with how people look we have an obsessions as a culture with how people look and and it's something that i you know fight against all the time because it again is a is a is symptomatic of transactional culture that that you know that some that something has to be worth something <laughs> you know that we don't we don't talk about value anymore we talk about worth you know and and so um if people if if singing is a way for people to find their own beauty it's worthwhile if only for that mm-hmm. you you hit on something there that i think I wanted to bring up, which is how often arts education, any any advocacy program for arts education has to be justified by how it influences mathematics or English. Transactional. So, I, yeah, yeah. I, I'm, yeah. I'm curious why about, yeah. Yeah, why, why isn't music uh, worth learning on its own? Why isn't? Why isn't theater class and dance class worthy by being uh, <laughs> by being capable of of contributing to a child's self worth? Not because it's going to make them a better math student. You know, it it doesn't have to be transactional. Mm-hmm. It can simply have a worth on its own. You know, we don't. You know. You want, a, you want someone to be able to read so that they can function in life. Reading is transactional at a certain level, but there's a lot about reading is simply a communicative tool that is going to allow you to discover who you are. And, and, and I mean, that's, Imagine. you know, uh, but so is music. And for some students, so is theater, or so is ballet, or so is painting. And if, and, if, and if one of those arts 
is going to open up a world for someone and he's going to give someone a voice that they might not otherwise have. How can we risk losing it? How can we risk making it a marginal transactional activity in education? That's too big a risk because we don't know. It's not, you know, it's not going to be the only thing that contributes to a person, but it's one of the things. And so we can't risk not having it. That's my feeling. We're even kind of unaware of the continuing voice metaphor that's permeating the conversation around helping somebody find their voice. I think Ken Robbins says something in that really good TED Talk about why schools kill creativity. And he says, look, you know, why aren't we making it mandatory for people to learn to dance? Everybody's got a body. Why don't we learn to use our bodies? Yeah. And we don't, you know, because it, it does. It, transactional term is that kind of materialist assumption that, you know, it, it has to be reduced to some kind of quantitative value that we can then communicate. And without yep. that, in the you absence of You have to educate that, people to get jobs instead of yes. educate people to be people. Yes. Who will then find their vocation or their job <laughs> based on who they are. Identity. Identity. And I think that in in arts educational terms, music or theater or painting or dancing or writing is more likely to to open a door to someone's identity um, than math or reading. That doesn't make math or reading less important. I mean that. You know, it, stu- it shouldn't be either or. Yes. You know, um, but, you know. But you're, you're hitting on an important point there because, f- f- in my experience, folks who are talking about the value of arts, for example, aren't saying and don't do mathematics. You know, Heavens no. The, the other tends to be, and that's something about, this, I think, the structure of our psychology that that in itself is transactional. Yes. I'll give you this if you take away this. <laughs> no one's saying that. Right. No one is saying that. But but the advocacy is to expand one's understanding of who they are mm-hmm. and how we relate to self and others as opposed to exclusively providing that transactional quantitative way of being as a means by which we can kind of make sense of our world. Yeah. Where do I fit? How much can I offer? can I do X, Y, or Z and meet your needs, check boxes, not, you know, uh, not those deeper questions about an interior process of where am I actually coming from and how am I connected with who I am and am I curious about voice identity? I mean, I, that, well, and what, what is that infinite thing that, is out there. We know it's there. There, there is, there is a, there is a beingness, and you see it through the eyes of John. I see it through the eyes of Patrick. But it's, it's, it is between us right now. We're both, we're both staring into it. Mm-hmm. And for me, the pathway to knowing about that is music. For you, 
the pathway to knowing about that is your own work whatever or work. what whatever you want it to be. But there isn't just you and me sitting in this room. There is there is another presence that we are both able to see by looking at each other. Does that make sense? To, to me it does. I think immediately of that uh, third. I mean, I go, I go kind of theoretical um, into this uh, um, transcendent function, you know, the kind of third, it's a, it's a Jungian term. Mm. So when you have, I mean, it's what, it's what we're talking about. It's when you have something like an idea and you combine it with some kind of form, Uh it, something else emerges out of that but that is music yes and and my point in the book about arts education is that maybe for some students that's painting or or that's basketball or right. or you know whatever that may be but surely we can be an expansive enough culture to know that it isn't that it isn't just one or two things we've you know and you know we've created a lot of space for for transactional things mm-hmm. we can create a lot of space for for creative pursuits as well this is the stuff that i think i, I tend to lean on william blake in in these moments because i'm so fascinated by his work and that when it comes to measurement you know that's the th- the thing that happens. You know our need to measure, to know for sure. sensory experience. You know as opposed to something that's immeasurable. You know? Well, yeah. I mean, how? Yeah, we we are in a time where people think you have to measure. You know, we're in a metrical measurement time, and so how do you measure a performance of the Saint Matthew Passion? Now, and, and how do you measure a Picasso painting? You know, well, I don't think he used enough paint. <laughs> you know? <laughs> well, it's, it's funny. I, I, it's funny you say that. I'm, I'm reading um, a paper from this fellow I talked to a while ago named Stuart Kaufman. And he, he, he it's, it's... I know the name somehow. He's, a, he's fascinating. Um, he talked about propositional versus metaphoric language, where we have this, you know, this yes-no proposition... Is it true, yes or no? Or is it metaphor, which is can't be, you can't look at metaphor from that lens. I can't read to you a poem and say, is it true or not? No, no. You, know, you, you can just... Is a Mozart symphony true? Yes. And, and the notes are true. Yes. But, but well, yeah. I, I like that. You know, so, so down to the, you know, there is a, there is a neuron there. There is a note. There is a particle um, but in a, a contextualized whole, the experience of that is is something else, and that's that kind of transcendent third piece. You know, there's yeah. something else that happens that mm-hmm. can't be quantified, can't be re. And, and I'm certainly, you know, I can play a record, but each time I listen to a record, there's going to be subtle differences in how I hear that based upon you know, my experience of it, which is that thing that I think. If you get into any study of consciousness, you know, there seems to be this really big split between 
you know, the epiphenomenon of my experience, which is just as, as a result of these kind of neurons that are functioning. Yeah. And, you know, when I say this is John, it's just like some byproduct or that actually my experience is fundamentally human. And that's where we get into values and meaning and intentions and what matters to us is something about our experience of, you know, our experience of the conversation. It's not just two voices that are vibrating. I mean, it is, but again, this theme, it's expanse. It's more than yes. that. Yeah. Now I will say that I don't, when I said my consciousness has shifted in the last few years, which is true. And I don't, I haven't figured out how or what, or if it's going somewhere, or I haven't figured that out. I don't know. But I will say that I don't always feel that third presence. Yeah. Sometimes I do. With certain people, I do. And so it must be some harmonic level of awareness that is present, mm -hmm. which sounds, sounds transactional to me as I say it. Some people have it. Some people don't. Some people have it to me. That doesn't mean they don't have it, you right. know, you know, but it, it just, it, um, I think, and I believe I know that that's what music is. It's, it's trying to quantify or define that other presence. It's try, it's trying to make it understood. And I think it's been trying to make itself understood for hundreds of years in in various ways and in various forms. And it keeps trying. So we keep creating music to try to give it voice. That's do you ever think uh because like you 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 put that quote about you know three chords and the truth yeah in your uh in your book and yeah it, it baffles me sometimes when we think like is it ever going to be done no right? certainly not <laughs> certainly right. not certainly not certainly not and it's baffling to me when I sit down and because I think this gets to your point about the the timber and you know rhythm you know when we you you take three chords and you can play it infinitely different even in the same structure mm -hmm. based upon how hard you're playing soft you're playing fast you're playing you know what and, the words are yeah mm -hmm. and and which is you know you get into the legalities of plagiarism and whatnot <laughs> i i am i am curious about your process and i i, I want to be can we go until two is that okay i don't know i'm i may have a i don't know we can find out. Okay, we'll find out. Yeah, she'll she'll, she'll knock on the door. So yeah, we've got seventeen minutes. If that's the case, um, I. Okay, so I, I want to know about my own process of creation. Meaning, as a writer yeah. or as, as a, writer, a musician, as a musician, because they're different. Because uh -huh. as as a musician, I don't write music, or I haven't yet written music. Uh huh. Uh, but as a writer, I, I mean, I've written books, you sure. know, and I do a lot of writing. So as a musician, um, I, I, I have to study in silence. So I just take a score, and after having learned it at the piano, because I'm a pianist, after having done the science at the piano, then I have to put the science away, Mm -hmm. And I take the score 
in silence and I study it. So it's not so much the matter of learning a score as it is studying a score. You know, I mean, and there are scores I've studied for years. And do I know them? Yep, I probably do. But I still study them. So I, uh, I try to connect with um, that infinite thing that's hovering around just in silent study. How do you get into that place? I open the score and I just go. It's just, uh-huh. and it's, and it's, I'm not always aware of what I'm absorbing. But I'll notice that in rehearsal later, months later sometimes, I'll notice something or hear something that I didn't know I knew. So I must have absorbed that in study process somewhere. Mm-hmm. You said something a, a while ago to me about, uh, and I forget what I had said that you were then responding to, but it was the need to know the canon. Yeah, that, I, I find, and that's a very outmoded idea, uh-huh. you know, the the canon because the, the the Western musical canon, classical music canon, is almost entirely written by white men of a certain privilege generally they weren't all privileged but but in comparison with many of the people of their time they were privileged mm-hmm. uh and so that's a very outmoded idea you know to 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 know and believe in the canon but i think uh i think knowing the canon gives you the confidence and the voice to go looking for your own uh canon of works that are meaningful to you but i i think there's a great uh benefit to having a common language of you know well i just think there's a great benefit to knowing every line of hamlet mm-hmm. you know and i think that i think we benefit as people by knowing the St. Matthew Passion. I think we I think we can gain that doesn't mean everybody has to know a lot about it, but just experiencing it. I think that canonical feeling is very unifying and well, very I- and very humanizing. And so so for me that canon is important, but but so are the diverse voices. But I think you get to the search for diverse voices by knowing the canon. That's my feeling. Because I think the I think what I've noticed in the internet era where the where everything is available at a touch of a hand, um, my feeling is that broad cultural knowledge is less. And we and people choose less when they have access to more. So, so a canon gives you a foundation. You at least know, you know, you you at least know what death of a salesman is about. You you at least know what streetcar named desire is about. You don't have to love it or watch it every year or anything, but you have that canonical experience from which you can seek whatever you want. 
Jack Black got at this in uh, School of Rock. Really? Yeah, he was <laughs> he was uh, the teacher of these kids, and he was saying, "You guys know the Ramones," and they right. were going, and he's, like, "What are you doing? You right. gotta know, like, you gotta know where all this stuff comes I agree, from." I agree with that. I I agree with that. And full full disclosure. I'm gonna leave and go investigate a lot of the canon, and these, you know, because I, from a literary perspective, I have that, you know, I, I, Dante and Faust, yeah. and you know, the early religious scholars. Mm -hmm. I, I find myself reading those folks, but, but I, I do like the idea of. I, I felt really empowered when I read. Your commentary, my my experience of your commentary about the need to take some responsibility for learning about the show you're going to see. Yeah, I thought that was because I saw a lot of La Boheme here a while ago, and I was one of those people kind of going, "All right," and <laughs> and I, I get it. I, I but I I was somehow, and I really get it for people. They are. A little bit like what your father was saying. I'm a little embarrassed by really not knowing what's going on here, and I'm I'm going to fulfill some kind of social. I got this is this is I'm supposed to like this stuff, you know, but I did none of the heavy lifting, and I look back on that and said, what a different experience that would have been if I would have known a bit more about. Well, I think, I think that a canon can really help a person. I think it. I think it I've seen it open up creative worlds for people. And like put a Beethoven symphony on in the car for for a week. Just one of the Beethoven symphonies, one of the nine Beethoven symphonies and just experience it, you know. And see see how that feels. You can do that once a week for nine weeks. There are nine symphonies. I accept. I And I, anybody that's listening, I, send an email and let me know if you did it. And yeah. I, I, I'm really curious because in doing this podcast, one of the things that's been fascinating is I include music on every episode. And the folks that I end up using for the songs, I listen to the entire catalog of their music. Interesting. It's brought music back online for me interesting. in a massive way. How interesting. I've loved it. It's uh, it's yeah. fantastic. Yeah. And I I accept that. I'm I'm going to do that. Cuz again, I yeah, we listen to records and we put on bait. My son loves classical music. Great. We listen, I mean loves it and um, he, you know, on on our on our date nights we're coming to see your operas now because that's one of the things that we share an interest in right. and it's motivating me to investigate more and more. Well, like the, the Handel opera that I'm about to rehearse, Saul, which is not known to people. They may know that Saul was the king of Israel. You know, they may know the biblical, the Old Testament story mm -hmm. uh, of which this is a portion, but they're not going to know a whole lot about that. So my feeling is that even just a half an hour of reading about Handel and Saul and hearing a couple of things from it will enrich that experience. It will be less scary. And you can you can hear the voice of the piece more when you when you come to the live experience. Oh. If you've 
if you've given yourself a little bit of, you know, I mean, I'm not saying people have to study for weeks before they come to our pieces, but, you know, I think there's a, there's, no, but there's an enriching you can give yourself. And I, I think it's fine to say, uh, uh, yes, okay, so what do I read? What do you want me to read? About Saul? About Saul, yeah. Uh, I can I can give you some things, but, you know, go go online and Google handle Saul. There's a lot. There's a lot you can read. I accept this you know? uh, this challenge to experiment. Yeah. I'm excited. And, and you know, what is this experience going to be like? I mean, this is this is a very rare staging of a very rare piece of music. So people have to be willing to take that leap. When is it? Uh, in October. Yeah. So anybody in Houston in October, yeah. Uh, Except this challenge. It is the it is the story of Saul, the king of Israel, and his relationship with his sons Jonathan and David, and their wives. And it is he is a in the context of Handel Saul, he is a he is placed into a leadership position. He is not equipped or he's not equipped to handle and doesn't want. And he goes mad uh, with the responsibility. So it is the story of that descent, but it's also how we perceive and project onto leaders the desires and uh, uh, shortcomings of ourselves. I'm eager. Okay, we got to start closing out, and I'm completely grateful. And I feel uh, we're finishing on this kind of excited note. And I feel we didn't get to spirit as much, but I, I feel spirited right now. So maybe that's <laughs> maybe that's enough. I'm wondering what we're leaving out, or what any. Oh my! I mean, sure, I get that. Uh, you know, I I in my own profession and i think i think in the culture broadly there are there are people who are like fireworks you know they you know shoot off and they're very very bright for a moment and and uh it dissipates and there are people who are slow burning fuses who aren't into fireworks and and you know as a as a musician as a person I'm a I'm naturally introverted in a very extroverted profession. And so that that has informed my own spiritual quest, I think, because I seek that out more because I'm 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 very happy I'm very happy being a performer and and being a musician. I mean it's I can't imagine doing anything else in my life. But the the extroversion that is expected in the culture now mm-hmm. is quite foreign to me. I can I can do the extroversion on behalf of Handel or on behalf of Wagner, but you know, to, but but on behalf of myself, that's harder. And so, so I really welcome the opportunity to talk about anything that might open up a spiritual quest for someone. And I think that. I think that music and opera is 
an extraordinary pathway into that for many people. I, again, I accept. Thanks. Really, Patrick, Thank thanks a lot. Thank yeah. you, John. Stay.